And please open everyone else to 1 Samuel chapter 11. We jump back into this book after a week away, and we're in the series where King Saul is put before us, the king the people choose. Really, the king was demanded by the people. They wanted a human king like the rest of the nations. God determined to make it Saul. God's going to work through Saul. Saul's going to stray from the Lord eventually, but here in this passage, we're off to a good start. So, 1 Samuel 11 is our text for the morning. Let me read it for us all the way through, then I'll go through and explain it. 1 Samuel 11, then Nahash the Ammonite went up to besiege Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out your right, all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite, so that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the, of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by, this time, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you. And you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. I've entitled this message, A New Salvation. We've got a new king in Israel. There's there's a new person on the throne, yet in this passage we see him coming from the field, but a new king, and he's going to be the means that God uses to bring certain salvation to Israel. Here it's the salvation against Nahash and the Ammonite forces. But God, don't, don't mistake this, God is saving His people here. He's rescuing His people by the leadership of King Saul. This is a new beginning. If you're like me, you like new beginnings. Uh, I, I loved the first day of school, not because I loved school, but because I didn't have any bad grades yet. <laughs> now, time would show that the bad grades would come, 
kids, don't be like your pastor when he was younger. Uh, but I always appreciate the first day of school. Everyone starts fresh. And there's something about this passage that's a reminder of that. The people have sinned against God, and yet there's a new king. And what's the first thing that happens under this king's reign? The people achieve salvation. They receive salvation from the hand of God. This is a new day. This is a good day. This is a fresh start. We'll see Saul's leadership deteriorate over time, but here, let's just kind of appreciate here that God has given salvation to His people, salvation from the Ammonite forces. And you'll see why that's important for us here in the 21st century. The same God is the God of us. The same God that benefits His people, saves His people, is there for His people, is there for us saves us, benefits us, guides us. So this passage shows us that God graciously saves His people through the leadership of Saul. Let's look at this passage in three parts, a three-part story of God saving His people. A three-part story of God saving His people. Here's the first part, first part of the story. God's people have vicious enemies. We see that in verses 1 through 4. God's people have vicious enemies. These enemies, the Ammonites, and specifically their king Nahash, are going after the people of God, and it's, they're going after them in a rather gruesome way. They're seeking to obtain this land of Jabesh-Gilead, and they threaten to gouge out the right eye of every man in order to see these people of Jabesh-Gilead be their indentured servants. And so, like, like it's not uncommon during this time for, for nations to war against each other, to overtake land, especially in this day and age, especially with the people of Israel, in a sense, historically freshly getting to this new land. All these other areas around them hate them, and they want that land back, including the Ammonites. Verse 1 of chapter 11 says, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. He goes and takes a territory of Israel. Now, God had given that land to the people of Israel, but you see this human king come and take a part of it over. Now, the reason that this man, this king, wants this territory is because of where it sits. Uh, from where you're sitting, if you have kind of a general map of the Middle East, you've got the Mediterranean Sea over here, and then you've got this land uh, just east of it, the, the, the land where most of the 12 tribes were, and then over here a little further, you've got the Jordan River. Well, on the other side of the Jordan River is Jabesh-Gilead, and then on the other side of Jabesh-Gilead is the land of the Ammonites. So Jabesh-Gilead being the closest land to the Ammonites, but still part of Israel over here, it would make sense for, for this king to take over this land, want this land. If he gets this land, maybe he can take over the rest of the land. So this king wants land, he goes after the people of God. And the passage continues in verse 1. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us. So they're pleading with him. Hold on, let's, let's come to terms of peace. He's trying to conquer them. They want to make a treaty. Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, on this condition I'll make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. So, so they're asking, and you'll see this in verse 3, they're asking for a little bit of time to see if they can, they can go and muster up some other troops to help them against Jabesh. I'm sorry, against Nahash. Now, you might think, why would he go for this? Why wouldn't he just overtake them and say, done with it, on to the next thing? Well, most people think it's because if they go and get their brothers from the rest of Israel and bring them, then he can defeat them. The Ammonite forces were strong. He can defeat all of Israel 
And so he can either have a little bit of territory now, or when they all come out against him, defeat all of them and have lots of territory. So he agrees to give them the seven days, and if he defeats them, he's going to gouge out all of their right eyes. Why the right eye? Because shields in that day covered your left eye, and you would look at your opponent and seek to to, to wound them by using your right eye. So if their right eyes are gone, they can't do much. So there's a threat here to overtake them. They plead for peace. Now what's interesting is we didn't know much more about this time period until 1947. In 1947, a shepherd boy was throwing rocks around uh, part of Qumran, and he threw rock, he was throwing rocks into a cave, and he heard a rock strike something like pottery. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in these caves, scrolls that had ancient texts on them. One of the ancient texts found on one of the scrolls in Cave 4, if you're keeping track, Cave 4, all right? Qumran Cave 4, a scroll of Samuel was found, and the scroll of Samuel has these verses before us, but it also says beforehand that Jabesh had already subdued the Reubenites and the Gadites by cutting out the right eyes of the people. So this, this, this king had already done that to a couple of the tribes. So you can see why this group in Jabesh Gilead would be fearful. But he agrees to this treaty And so, verse 3, the elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you in indentured servitude. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, so he lets them go, the messengers go out from Jabesh Gilead and they're going into Israel trying to find salvation, trying to find people that will come and fight for them. They go to Gibeah of Saul, the place where Saul is. They reported the matter in the ears of the people and all the people wept aloud. The people wept aloud because they think they're going to lose. There's a strong force they're facing. The people of God have enemies surrounding them. Nothing has changed. The world is not friendly to the people of God. You might think it sometimes looks friendly, but just open your eyes and look around to the rest of the world. We see traces of the world being unfriendly to us here in America. Different places in the world see it more visibly. But we do understand that there are enemies of the people of God. Not that we view them as enemies, but they view us as enemies. We have this message of peace and reconciliation and love and mercy and grace. How could everyone not love us? But they hate us. Jesus taught His disciples that this would be the case. In John 15, 18, He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So, we see the world in 1100 B.C., specifically one king, hating the people of God and actually planning to treat them viciously. We see the world hating the people of God. They, later on, the world would hate Jesus. The Romans literally crucified Jesus. And then the apostles are going to go out and preach the Word, and almost all of them are going to die as martyrs. Today, you can literally get a magazine called The Voice of the Martyrs and read about Christian persecution happening today all over the world. The world still hates what Christians stand for. It's not that they hate the idea of salvation. They hate the idea of salvation only in Jesus Christ. Or they hate the idea of not just Jesus being Savior, but of Him being Lord. The world is hostile to our message. And therefore, in many ways, they're hostile toward the people of God. Nothing has changed. God's people are the objects of 
hatred in many ways. And the New Testament seems to want to remind the people of God about that. Again, I read to you John 15 and Jesus telling His disciples, hey, let's get this straight. You're going to go out and you're going to do something in my name. You're going to proclaim my name to the nations, and they're going to hate you for it. But remember, they hated me for it. 1 John 3, listen to these words. 1 John 3, 11 says this, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So John telling the Christian community, hey, we're, we're to love one another. Our, our shepherd, our leader, Jesus, was one who demonstrated his love. We're to love one another. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who is the evil one and murdered his brother. So you've got the evil one murdering the righteous one. Happened all the way back in Genesis 4, and John's reminding us of that. The evil one murdered the righteous one. And then you see that all the way through human history. We see in our passage today, 1 Samuel 11, evil ones going after the people of God. What happened to Jesus? The evil ones murdered the righteous ones. What, happened, what happens today? The world, the evil world, hates the righteous ones. And then he continues. So we should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And then this, listen to what John says to the church. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So one of the ways you know you're a child of God is you actually have love for others. And John's reminding the Christian community, don't be surprised that the world hates you. Where did John get that? From his friend, his close friend, Jesus, from his Lord Jesus, who taught the same thing. So I think it's important when you read a passage like 1 Samuel 11, 1 through 4, and you read about this evil king going after the people of God, it's not just something isolated in human history. Oh, wow, that's what life was like back then. It's like that today. People do not love righteousness. People do not love those who stand for righteousness. People do not love those who proclaim the salvation and the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's not a message that wins you friends most often. And where does this come from? Well, we know it comes from the chief enemy of our Lord, Satan himself. Satan lived then, 1 Samuel 11. He lives now. He seeks to do harm to the people of God. This is a common theme in human history. There's a book that I, I really would encourage all of you to read. It's called Thoughts for Young Men. And you might say, I'm not a young man. It's okay. It's a really good book on just sanctification in the Christian life. But it's written specifically toward young men, like 44 and below. I think that's about <laughs> what qualifies a young man. <clears throat> It's called Thoughts for Young Men, and I want to read you a portion of it. He writes early in the book to young men, and he's writing to warn them about their enemy, the enemy of their soul, Satan himself. And as I read 1 Samuel 11, 1 through 4, I'm reminded the people of God have always had enemies, and they have one great enemy. And J.C. Rao warns young men about this, but hear it, whether you're a young man or someone else, listen to these words from Ryle. Listen to this paragraph. He, Satan, would make you think evil is good, and good is evil. He will paint and gild and dress up sin in order to make you fall in love with it. He will deform and misrepresent the caricature of true religion 
in order to make you take a dislike to it. He will exalt the pleasures of wickedness. These are all the enemy's tactics. But he will hide from you the sting of wickedness. He will lift up before your eyes the cross and its painfulness, show you how difficult it is to follow Jesus. But he will keep out of sight the eternal crown. He will promise you everything as he did Christ if you only serve him. He will even help you to wear a form of religion if you will only neglect the power. He will tell you at the beginning of your lives it's too soon to serve God. He will tell you at the end it's too late. Oh, be not deceived. Your enemy is restless. He never sleeps. He is always going about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He is ever going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it. You may be careless about your souls. He is not. That's our enemy. The people of God are always at war. Why? Because, because we are trying to bring war to the world. No, we're trying to bring message of salvation to the world. We're at war because they are at war with the people of God. Always have been. Always will be until Revelation 19 when Christ comes to subdue, defeat His enemies and bring His people home. So God's people have vicious enemies. And know this, there is an enemy of your soul today. He hates you. He hates your family. He hates your children. He hates your spouse. He hates this church. And the New Testament gives us instruction on how to win the war against this enemy. Ultimately, it's to trust in, have faith in the power of Jesus Christ and to walk according to His Spirit. But make no mistake, we have an enemy, just like the people of God did in 1 Samuel 11. But there's a second part to the story. It doesn't just end with our enemies. There's a second part to the story. God's people have salvation by God's power. God's people have salvation by God's power. We see this in verses 5 through 11. God acts here. God does something. He works to save His people from the Ammonites. Verse 5, now behold, that word so important in the Scriptures. Now pay attention to this. Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. We know Saul has already been anointed king, even in a public way, but he's still at work in the field. He's coming in from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, what's wrong with the people? Why are they weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. They told him the Ammonites are going to kill us. The men of Jabesh said that they're going to kill the men of Jabesh Gilead, and they need us to go and defend them. That's why. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. When he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled. Notice what happens. The Spirit of God is going to rush upon, act through Saul. So we're going to see in the rest of the chapter, Saul's going to lead his people in a military of battle. Why is he successful? Because he's tall and handsome? No, because of the Spirit of God. God is the one who saves Israel. He just does it through a man through this new king, Saul. The Spirit of God rushes upon Saul. Notice the first thing that happens when the Spirit of God comes upon Saul. Saul has this righteous indignation. When his people are threatened, he's righteously angered by it. So the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul, and his anger is greatly kindled. This is a good reminder for us. Anybody who's ever been meaningful in your Christian life, anybody who's ever taught you, led you, discipled you, cared for you, anybody who's given benefit to you in the Christian life is simply an instrument because of the power of God. Let's just remember that. 
We hold leaders up high. We hold disciples up high. We hold grandparents and parents up high. We hold older siblings up high. But remember, they gave, they, they gave to you some benefit because God was giving them the ability to benefit you. God is the main character here. He's the Savior here. He simply uses men and women, uses them to care for and help bring salvation to His people. But God is the one saving the people. Verse 7, Saul, he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Now, remember this, Samuel written in the time of the judges, so the book of Judges and Samuel go together. I keep telling you that it's so important. Have we ever heard of something or someone being cut up before? Yeah, there was a woman who was tragically, horrifically raped by a number of men in Judges chapter 19. You know where that happened? Gibeah, same place we're at here. And her master sent her body all throughout the land of Israel showing that there's vengeance coming here. Let's muster up together this force against Gibeah. Well, here Saul's doing the same thing with his oxen. He's cutting up the oxen. Something tragic happened back in Judges 19 in Gibeah. Something wonderful is going to happen from here, from Gibeah. People are going to be saved and salvation is going to take place from Gibeah over to Jabesh Gilead as they, as they defeat Nahash and the Ammonites. So Saul cuts up all these, both of these oxen, sends them throughout, basically saying, this is going to happen to all of your oxen out there, people of Israel. If you men don't come and amass as one for, fortress, one force as we go against the Ammonites. So what do the men of Israel do? They respond to Saul's leadership. Then, verse 7 says, the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. So they're scared not to get up and fight. So they all come out as one man to go up and fight. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, take this message back to the people who are quaking in their boots, the people who are weeping, people who are scared in Jabesh Gilead. Tell them this, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. What a statement. The Ammonites were powerful. What a statement. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, and they said this to Nahash, they're misleading him. Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you that you may do whatever seems good to you. They're getting the Ammonites to kind of put down their arms, kind of think, okay, we've won the battle. This is going to happen tomorrow. We're going to defeat them tomorrow. But they're just preparing the Ammonites for a surprise attack. Verse 11, and the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Figure of speech saying that you couldn't even find two Ammonite warriors. That's how much they had been defeated. They, they're all separated and fleeing and dying, and you can't even find, I mean, they had thousands amassed, and now you can't even find two of them amassed together. God gives salvation to His people. He rescues His people 
from the Ammonites through the hand of Saul, but he's the one that gives the power. God's people have salvation by, not the hand of Saul, but by the Spirit of God, by the power of God. Are God's people still powerful today? Are God's people given power by God today? Well, I'll remind you of what Matthew one twenty one says about the salvation of God. The angel speaking to Joseph, the father of yet-to-be-born Jesus, the angel says this to Joseph, she, your wife, Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. 1,100 years before, God saved his people from the hands of the Ammonites. Then, 1,100 years later, God sends his own son to save his people from their sins. Worse than any military force is the sin that we are born with, the sin that we engage in. That's our greatest enemy. And God sent Jesus Christ into the world to save his people from their sins. Why does God keep saving his people? Why does God keep giving salvation? He can't but help it. That's who he is. Our God is a savior by nature. Jesus Christ, we know, would be born, and it wasn't that he was born and then grew up in royalty and sat on the throne and saved his people militarily. He grew up and took the sins of his people and paid for the sins of his people to give them salvation. Now they have a righteous standing before God because he takes their sin and gives them his righteousness. God in his son, in Jesus Christ, saves his people from their sins. This is the greatest enemy we all have, our sin. The greatest enemy we have. The scriptures are clear about that. In fact, in Colossians 1, we are said to be the enemies. We are. We are the enemies of God. Oftentimes, you read the Old Testament, you think of yourself as Israel. For a moment, think of yourself as the Ammonites going after God. We're his enemies, and yet Jesus comes to reconcile us in his fleshly body of death. Colossians 1.23. So God still saves his people through his son, Jesus Christ. But notice this passage in verse 6 talks about God's Spirit, God's Spirit rushing upon Saul. You read this and you think, wow, wouldn't that be awesome for God's Spirit to rush upon me like that? Guess what? If you're a Christian, that's what happens. Acts 2, the great preaching of Peter at the beginning of the church. He preaches, repent, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in the new covenant, all the people of God had the Holy Spirit inside of them. In the old covenant, he would, he would rush upon certain people for certain tasks. Here in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit indwells all of us. So talk about power. We have the ability to live the way God intends. We have the ability to be overcomers through the Spirit that indwells us. I did a little study of, of what the Holy Spirit does to the new covenant people of God. This is for us today. So the Holy Spirit rushed upon Saul, and he leads the nation into this great defeat over the enemies of God. The Holy Spirit indwells us, according to the New Testament, and listen to what the Holy Spirit does. These are the privileges that we have. The Holy Spirit adopts, baptizes, baptizes us into Christ, bears witness, convicts, empowers, fills, guarantees our salvation, guards our salvation, helps us, illuminates the Word to us, indwells us, intercedes for us. I, I, don't, I just don't know what to pray. 
the Holy Spirit will take that and pray what needs to be prayed to God the Father. What a ministry. What a ministry of this Holy Spirit for us. And I'm just on the eyes. Uh, We've got more. The Holy Spirit leads us. The Holy Spirit produces fruit in us. The Holy Spirit provides spiritual character. The Holy Spirit regenerates. The fact that your heart is alive is because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit restrains us from sin. The Holy Spirit resurrects. The Holy Spirit reveals truth. The Holy Spirit sanctifies. He seals. He sends. He strengthens. He teaches. That's why when the Apostle John says, hey, you've got enemies, don't be surprised by this, later on in the next chapter of his first epistle, the Apostle John says this, he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. So 1 John chapter 3 is telling us the one who's in the world is against us. 1 John chapter 4 says, he who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. That's, that's consistent with 1 Samuel 11. The Spirit of God overthrows, defeats the enemies of God's people. Now the Spirit of God is inside of God's people, and John tells us the one who's in you is greater than he that's in the world. what's the necessary application for us? When we read about a battle that happened in 1100 BC where God's Spirit leads the people of God in victory, what's the application to us right now, 21st century in December? what's, What's the application to us? To believe that the same God who loves and saves His people then by His Spirit's power loves and cares for us and works power in us as we live today in a world full of enemies, spiritual enemies. That's what we have to do. We have to believe this. I fear that some of you in your battle against sin and battle against <clears throat> just, just walking according to the flesh have this idea that I'll never overcome this. I can't do this. I'm not strong enough. Where is God? What's going on? That's not faith. The New Testament calls us to have faith not in ourselves. If you're saying, I'm not good enough to do this on my own, you're right. But we have someone inside of us, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, who indwells us. I'm reading a book. You see it in, the, in your worship guide as the book of the month. It's a book uh, written to people who are seeking to help people who are struggling in sexual sin. And this book is giving guidance to, again, maybe disciples who are helping people who struggle with sexual sin. And the book has a section where it talks about the importance of faith. You have to believe in the power of God to overcome sexual sin if you're one with Christ. You have to believe that He gives power. And that's not just sexual sin. Any sin. Yes, we hate sin. We're discouraged by it. But we have to remember that we've been given power by God. The same Holy Spirit who was alive then is alive now. The same Spirit. So brothers and sisters, have faith and who God is and the power that He is inside of you. Listen to Galatians 2.20. I know you know this, but listen to this. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the Spirit of Christ. But But Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So this is someone that says, I know that Jesus lives in me, and now I'm living in the flesh. It's not easy. There are temptations. There are conflicts. It's not easy, but I'm living by faith that Jesus is inside of me. That's a great life verse, if you will, Galatians 2.20. Have faith in the one that defeated the Ammonites is the same one 
that seeks to dispel darkness in your life. Have faith in His power. Trust in His power. So God's people do have vicious enemies, but they're also saved by God's power. Third part of this story of salvation, God's people have a commitment to Him. So God's people have enemies, but then God responds and He saves them from their enemies. What does that mean for God's people? They commit themselves to Him. We're going to see this in these verses 12 to 15. This is a recommitment ceremony, if you will. Interesting words, interesting thing that happens after this battle, after this defeat of the Ammonites. Uh, Samuel does something and he leads the people in an act. So far we've heard of Saul leading the people, but now Samuel is going to lead the people in a response to God's salvation. Verse 12, then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Remember last time we studied this book? Saul had been anointed king, this great procession. The people are in awe of their new king. But there are some worthless fellows who said, this guy? Is this guy really going to save us? Saul didn't do anything then. He could have done something to punish them. He didn't. Let it go. Now that the Ammonites are defeated, the people are like, hey, where are those guys? We need to show them Saul's the one who can defeat our enemy. Saul can save us. Let's get him. Let's kill him. But Saul said, verse 13, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. This is a great start to Saul's kingship. He doesn't say, I'm going to let him go, but don't you all forget, I won salvation for us today. Saul knows it. Today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. This is an interesting thought. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that it was probably about a month after the public anointing of Saul where everyone saw that he was king. It's probably a month later that this happens. He defeats the Ammonites. So why is Samuel saying, hey, we need to have a renewal ceremony about the kingdom? It's probably not because they need to renew their commitment to Saul. It's probably more that they need to renew their commitment before God. That's what Samuel's leading them in. Come to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. Renew is a response to a previously deteriorated state. So there's a, king, there's a response to the kingdom that's been deteriorating. Let's renew our response to the kingdom. Verse 15, so all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul the king, notice these words, before the Lord in Gilgal. This is a way of saying, Lord, we're following your king Saul as we follow you. They're recommitting themselves to God, or at least Samuel is guiding them into that. They'll do that in the next chapter. But he's guiding them into a recommitment to the Lord. There they sacrificed peace offerings. They're sacrificing to the Lord because they know that God has made peace with them, so they sacrifice these peace offerings. This is Samuel leading them in a recommitment to the Lord as they commit to obeying Saul as their king. It's interesting here in the last verse, there they sacrificed peace offerings. You know what happened when you sacrificed a peace offering? Well, let me say this. When you sacrificed other offerings, 
a portion of the meat in, in some of the offerings went to the priests who sacrificed it. That was how they earned their money or, or the food that they needed. They would do the sacrifice and they would get a portion of it to feed them and their families. Well, in the peace offering, peace offering is unique. People would come into the tabernacle complex and there the meat would be sacrificed, the, the animal would be sacrificed, and the meat would be eaten not just by the priests but also by the people. You would stay and have a meal with the priests in the tabernacle. The idea being people, priests, Yahweh, God are all eating together at peace. And so this is what the people do. They know, Saul's told them, they know that God is the one that achieves salvation to them. So Samuel says, now it's time to go and recommit to God, recommit to following God as we follow the king he's given us, Saul. And there they sacrificed and made this peace offering. So the people are eating at peace, not just because their enemies aren't anymore, but they're at peace with God. Remember, they were at enmity with God, weren't they? Earlier in the passage, or in the text, chapter 8, verse 7, God told Samuel, they're asking for a king not because they're rejecting you, but because they're rejecting me. In the next chapter, chapter 12, Samuel, in his kind of farewell speech to the nation, says that you rejected God so that you would have another king that would help defeat the Ammonites. But I can't get past this. God saves his people graciously, even when they rejected him and asking for a human king to save them. But what does he do? He still saves them through the means of a human king. God is so gracious. He didn't just get gracious in the New Testament when He sent Jesus His Son. He was gracious to His people in the Old Testament. God is such a gracious God. He leads them in victory. And what does that mean for God's people? When you have experienced the salvation of God, you commit your life to Him. That's what this teaches us. God's people recommit themselves to God after they're freshly aware of His salvation. Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. That's the idea. That's the thought. God's people are saved, and so they commit to Him. Let me say this to any of you who aren't Christians, or maybe, maybe some of you kids in here, okay, you're young people in here. You may have this idea that being a Christian means that you do good things, and then maybe you please God, and He's happy with you and brings you to heaven. No, no, no. The good things that we do, the, the, the ways that we obey the Bible, respond to God, are because we're grateful for the salvation that He gave us when we didn't deserve it. And so when we appreciate His salvation, we're grateful for His salvation, that He would save wretches like us, we then say, now I want to live for you. I want my life to be one giant thank you to you. That's what we do when we obey the Scriptures. We obey because we've been saved, not we obey because we might be saved if we obey enough. We obey because we are saved. We commit to Christ because He first committed to us. Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you get to Romans 12, by the mercies of God, give your life as a living sacrifice. That's the timeline. That's what happens. So God's people are saved and they commit themselves to Him. You see here the people of God so often being worried and anxious about the nations around them. They're so worried and anxious that they 
stop trusting in God as their king. They ask for a human king and God still graciously saves them. But isn't it true that as the people of God, our minds can quickly be thrown off of devotion to our king? We can quickly fear and have anxiety and be nervous about this or that thing happening all around us. All the while, there's this king in heaven who would guide us if we would trust him. Again, this is nothing new. When Jesus came and began teaching, he said this in his most famous sermon. He said this to people who were tempted to be anxious, tempted to be fearful. He told them not to be anxious and fearful because the Father in heaven loves them, cares for them. And then he said this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness all these other things will be taken care of. All these other things will be added to you. But, but that phrase, Jesus teaching his people, listen, seek first God's kingdom. Want his kingdom to grow. Want his kingdom to expand. Want him to be glorified and magnified. That should be true of what you, your heart wants. Make that the thing that you desire the most. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek to obey him. Seek to walk like him. Seek to walk in the spirit like him. Seek to look like him. So seek his glory, his kingdom advancement. Seek his righteousness. And all these other things will take care of themselves. I think we need to hear that today. We are so fixated on our kingdom. Is this going to go well? Is that going to go well? I'm nervous about this. I'm nervous about them. What's happening here? What's happening? Seek first his kingdom. Want his glory. Make much of him. Seek to obey him and what he tells you to do. And let him take care of all the things troubling you. But where's your heart? Is your heart seeking your kingdom seeking your comfort, your ease, your security, or is it seeking His kingdom and trusting Him to take care of everything else? I've found in the Christian life that people who have less anxiety, more joy, are people who are more purposeful in living for the kingdom of God. There's a certain fixation they have on making Christ known, loving Him, and wanting to talk about Him, and share Him, and trust Him, and they're reading and seeing Him, and they're praying to Him. They're just, they're just the kingdom is, His kingdom is at the forefront of their mind. You don't see people like that often being anxious. I'm not saying they don't have trials. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's a certain mindset they have that leads to a certain trust so do you care about the kingdom of God? Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. No, 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 no. Hold on. I'm asking a hard question here. Do you care about the kingdom of God advancing? Do you care about Him being honored and glorified? Do you care about Him being blessed forever? We see that word oftentimes in the Scripture. Blessed be God. Blessed be, Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word blessed, it means do you wish goodwill for God? Do you wish that people would bow the knee to him and sing to him and praise him? Do you wish that for God? Or are you so fixated on your kingdom and comfort and security? He's saying, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do you care about the kingdom of God? I think it's helpful here to see the salvation of God and then to see the people responding in a renewed commitment to him. And maybe that's where we're at today. 
We remember that God saved you by His grace. God's Holy Spirit regenerated your heart. And now the appropriate response is now, Father, in a renewed way, I want to live for you. If there's any way where you've been prioritizing your own kingdom over God's kingdom, today's a great day to remember, God, you've saved me. I want to live for your kingdom. I want to be like your son. I want to obey you out of a heart of gratitude, a renewed commitment to God's kingdom. So we see the story here, right? God's people have these vicious enemies, but God's people also have his power of salvation, and that leads to a commitment from his people to him. Kingdom living starts with being grateful for the salvation that we have. Let me say that again. Living rightly before the Lord, living obediently to the Lord, living in a, in a newly committed way before the Lord is a response to the salvation that He's given us. So if you're struggling and living and being committed to the King, go back. Go back to what He's done for you in the gospel. That's why so many of the New Testament epistles don't start with commands first. They start with who you are in Jesus Christ, what He's done for you in bringing you salvation. And then it says, now by the mercies of God, present yourself as a living sacrifice to Him. That's the pattern. Love so amazing, so divine, demands our, all, our life, our all. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the salvation that You give Your people you did it then, you do it now. You are powerful in this passage. In this passage, you are gracious. And in this passage, your people recommit to you. Pray that today would be a day where we praise you for your salvation. We trust in your power. Father, for those here who are struggling with sins and difficulties, Holy Spirit, infuse into them a faith in your power, in God's power in them. Give them the trust that I am more than a conqueror. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Greater are you in me than he that is in the world. Father, give them that confidence. Father, remind your people constantly of the power that you are in their life. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.